This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. Hello, Allah, and welcome to a special Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Now, as we're about to celebrate the Hijri New Year, we're going to hear from one of the most powerful voices today who's speaking out against Islamophobia and actively promoting new dialogues of understanding between cultures and faiths. Dr. Craig Considine joins me from Houston, Texas, to tell me why, despite the backlash, he won't stop speaking up for Islam and Muslims. That's next right here on Pulse95. With Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. Dr. Craig Considine is a scholar, professor, and global speaker based at the Department of Sociology at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He is the author of many books and articles, including Islam in America, Exploring the Issues. An American of Irish and Catholic descent, he is an outspoken supporter of Muslims, particularly in the midst of heightened Islamophobia from political leaders following incidents like the Christchurch massacre. In the lead up to the Hijri New Year celebrations, I spoke to him about his work and his active social media presence and how his quest to understand what happened on 9-11 He fell in love with the teachings of the Qur'an and the Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings be upon him. Dr. Craig, I first discovered you, as many people have all over the world, online, on social media, where your posts are just such a refreshing change to the often divisive and Islamophobic rhetoric that we're bombarded with online. You yourself are Irish Catholic, but you've actually been one of the most vocal advocates of Islam for Muslims, for the Prophet Muhammad, uh, really that I have ever come across. And you do this actually despite a lot of backlash that you get, not only from people online, which is, you know, pretty vicious, but from people like priests and pastors too. Talk to me about why you do this. Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, I think at the kind of public and practical level, this type of inter-religious work is important and it's what societies and the world need. You know, when we think about the two largest religious populations in the world, you know, they are pretty much Christian of some degree and Muslim of some degree, and the numbers are only going to increase. So we're almost talking about like half of the human beings on planet Earth associate themselves in some way or another with these two religious traditions. And, you know, throughout history, but increasingly in recent times, we see this kind of binary worldview coming out where it's, you know, the Islamic world versus the Western world and Islam versus Christianity and the United States versus, you know, seemingly everyone. And these are not healthy ways of thinking about our existence, our human race, and our humanity. So at the pragmatic, practical, common sense level, the work, um, I think, serves a value um, in terms of kind of bridging the gap. And then, 
you know, there's a second component to, you know, the, the motives and the drivers behind my work, and that is my own, you know, spiritual journey. Um, I grew up in a Catholic household and had wavering commitments to my Catholic faith throughout my life and kind of went in and out of it. When I came across the Islamic tradition, finally, when I was in college, um, it kind of made me think differently about creation, about our purpose in life, about about God, about our Creator and our fellow human beings. And I actually attribute, um, you know, studying Islam as being one of the reasons that you know reinvigorated my faith and my my own personal journey. So, you know, I have great admiration for. Um, Muhammad and his vision, his um, his egalitarian vision of um, what I refer to as simply as humanity, and it's beautiful to actually witness um, his spirit come out in Muslims themselves and, and the goodness that Muslims have shown the world, and then also to me personally. So it's it's rewarding uh, and it's and it's quite. Uh, enriching um, to have Islam as part of this kind of larger spiritual journey that I hope to continue on as the years progress. That's pretty incredible that you say, you know, it, it, your own spiritual journey was kind of reignited because of uh, you uh, f- finding Islam and understanding Islam. Talk to me about how that happened, because, uh, you know, growing up in, in the South <laughs> of uh, the United States, this is not really a place where, you, you know, Islam and Muslims are very much, you know, everywhere and talked about in, in, in the rosiest of terms. So what happened? Well, you know, oddly enough, or maybe I should say funny enough, when I went to college, I was trying to become an intelligence officer in the CIA or something like this um, to try to understand why something like 9-11 happened because I was 15 when 9-11 happened and had no exposure to Muslims and had no understanding of, of Islamic history or the Quran or anything and when I got to college I started studying it and I started understanding that religion uh, you know in this case Islam doesn't have to simply be viewed through you know religious practices or holy books or like merely prophets that you know when studying Islamic history I started understanding the great contributions that Muslims have made throughout history and then learning too about you know, how religious minority populations were treated and oftentimes they thrived under what we might call, you know, Islamic rule in a in a Muslim nation. So it was quite interesting to view religion outside of the, pr- the prism of this kind of rigid belief system and understanding. I started thinking of it in light of, you know, historical context and, and the modern context and, and understanding that you know, this idea of Islam that is so demonized and depicted as the other or the opposite of, like, what the West was, I mean, that kind of view is just factually inaccurate. There have been so many moments in history where, you know, Muslims, Westerners, Christians, people all over the world actually come together and they find ways of synthesizing the best of their cultures and the best of their religions and creating something new. So... That's pretty much an intellectual, almost philosophical um, way of kind of capturing this, this process that I went on. But it was really about ideas and understanding history and finding ways 
of taking the best from our traditions and making something new alongside one another in a cooperative manner. Coming up next, Dr. Greg tells us why the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was a trailblazer in civil and women's rights. That's next, right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. You're You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Life Beats with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. It's Life Beats and I'm speaking to Dr. Craig Considine about why he believes the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was one of the most influential figures in history and why he was such a trailblazer for civil and women's rights. What else, what do you see in the Prophet Muhammad and in the Quran that moves you so much? Wow, that's a, that's a beautiful question and I think it's one I can certainly talk about for quite some time. I mean, in, in, in terms of just my admiration for his for his journey uh, in life, you know, starting off as an orphan, losing your parents, um, you know, kind of having to jump around uh, with different relatives and having to immerse yourself in new environments as a young, you know, boy and then a young man. I mean, that's that's really hard, you know. Like I. I'm not an orphan myself, but, you know, I, I have family members that have gone through kind of similar um, experiences, and for him to start that way and then to kind of progress into someone who in Mecca was widely respected, known as the trustworthy, um, respected by his peers, and, you know, he had this conviction when he was on Mount Hira, he had the conviction and he had his revelations and then, you know, he just said, This is this is what I was born to do, this is my moment and um I mean he was it was just pure um trust in what God had planned for him and he you know, and he went with it. So I, I respect I think his determination, his resiliency. Um, I have a great respect for people that have gone through hardship, immense hardship. I mean, even um, things like losing family members in war and having to flee Mecca to Medina and starting over. I mean, those things are just mind-blowing. And the second element that I think really guides my appreciation, respect, and love for him, this has to do more with his ideas of how to run a society, you know? Every revolution, he created a revolution, starts basically almost from scratch. Like, what what are we trying to do here that is different from what has been here for centuries? And, you know, there are things like the farewell sermon in which he says an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab, a white has no superiority over a non-white, except in piety and good action. I mean, that is a anti-racist uh, worldview, which is direly needed right now. It's a message of racial equality. And I think when I heard that for the first time, the thing I thought of immediately was Martin Luther King Jr. You know, I, I grew up in the United States, loved Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. As a, as a boy, and I was like, wow, so here's the prophet of Islam in, in 632 AD saying the same thing as one of the greatest Americans, African Americans, um, ever. In 1963, I mean that's a thousand years apart. Uh, if my math, if my math is right, and also kind of 
creating a society, this is Muhammad's vision of transcending not only race, but also, you know, tribalism and this idea of, of ethnocentrism, this idea that, you know, this society is only going to be run and dominated by this particular clan or this particular religious group. You know, the constitution of Medina shows us that he essentially entered into a confederation with various groups of people, primarily Jewish tribes, and he basically said that we're all in this together. It was a compact that, again, it transcended race, it transcended ethnicity. You know, as an American, when I think about my country, that is the ideal that I want my country to live up to. And Muhammad has the same idea. So for me, that's a way of kind of bridging the gap between, you know, Western civilization and Islam, finding ways in which these things can synthesize. So Muhammad as a statesman, Muhammad as a guider of a diverse group of people, Muhammad as the man himself, the, the orphan, the child, the husband, um, and, you know, and the prophet. He was a man of, of many, many hats. So I have great admiration for him. Um, one of my uh, favorite tweets as well that you tweeted uh, a couple of days back uh, was about how he was one of the first feminists as well. I remember giving a speech one time about that and saying that about him as well and, and you know, how much he revered women and how much, you know, he promoted the position of women, you know, before the 20th century ever saw women's rights as well. Absolutely, and, you know, we just need to... When you try to make this point, you know, you just start with Khadija, you know, his, his first wife. I mean, this was a woman who was older than him, that was a lot more successful than him, a lot more connected than him, and a lot more wealthy than him. You know, most men, perhaps I'm generalizing here, but most men would be perhaps intimidated by a woman like that. Yes. Because it kind of dulls their own sense of manhood, you know, it's like, oh, I, my, my wife can't be more powerful and rich than me. I mean, that's kind of an egotistical thing that some men do, and obviously it may not be unique to men, but perhaps it is. And he, and he was just saying, no, I mean, I'm humble enough, uh, and I think I could love this woman, and I'm going to enter into this marriage um, with him. And, and he did that, you know? So like that fundamental kind of starting point in, in terms of his relationships with women, I mean, that is highly symbolic um, in itself. And of course, he initiated like revolutionary ideas of women's place in society, and you can imagine the Quraysh tribe were not too happy with his idea, not just of you know racial equality or religious equality, but this idea of kind of elevating, uh, not simply respecting women, you know, because Muhammad certainly did that, but actually like elevating them in society and giving them the opportunity to pursue different roles. Um, in life. So certainly by any stretch of the imagination, like most, as a scholar, I, I've studied this, and most historians, theologians, sociologists, they all kind of come to this uh, singular agreement that for his time, he was absolutely progressive. Uh, he was absolutely a trailblazer in terms of how, um, quite fundamentally, how to treat women, you know? And then, of course, like, you're going to always get some people, politicians, religious leaders, etc., who are going to find something in the Quran or the Hadith or whatever it might be, and, and try to uh, depict Muhammad as you know a an abuser of women, 
uh, or or something like this. But you know, these these people are always missing the bigger picture. They're missing the forest. They're only focusing on the singular uh, tree. So if you take his life kind of as as a big snapshot, I mean, he was a he was a trailblazer uh, and he was a revolutionary in many ways, not simply the, uh, the treatment of women. Coming up, we talk the year of tolerance and the commonalities between faiths. There are many more than you think. That's next right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Life Beats with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. The Quran says, O humankind, we have created you from a male and female and made you into nations and tribes so that you may know one another. The noblest of you in the sight of God is the best in conduct. I'm speaking to Dr. Craig Considine in the United States as we celebrate the Hijri New Year. And here he talks to me about the commonalities that more of us need to see between faiths and cultures. Now, as, as Muslims, we are taught from a young age that our tradition is part of the Abrahamic faiths, which include Christianity and Judaism. And we are taught to respect other faiths. In fact, uh, here uh, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, 2019 is marked as the year of tolerance. And we saw the landmark visit from the Pope this year coming to the UAE. I would love to hear from you, Dr. Craig, about the commonalities that you see between your faith and, and other faiths and Islam. Well, again, certainly so many threads to potentially uh, pick apart. I think, number one, we have the common ancestor. So this is the, the theological level. We are rooted in stories documented in the Old Testament. We are rooted in the figure and the family of, of Abraham uh, himself. You know, unfortunately, from a Christian perspective, obviously the New Testament was written before Muhammad came. So it, a lot of people say there might be some biblical verses that uh, predict the coming of Muhammad, but there's nothing specifically in the New Testament about Muhammad. But if we flipped it, the Quran obviously reveres Jesus, um, recognizes Mary as the best woman uh, to ever walk the face of the earth. So we have historical parallels, but I think the more important thing when we think about the Abrahamic tradition is to understand that, yes, we have theological links through religious texts, but fundamentally our faiths, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, teach us and provide us with moral guidance on how to treat people. Right, so even this morning, I put something up on Twitter, and it said something like, he cared for the poor, he treated women equally, he uh, suggested that everyone give to charity, and so on and so forth. And then I asked the question, I said, who is this man? And I said, I answered my own kind of question, and I said, if you guessed Prophet Muhammad, you're correct. If you guessed Jesus, you're also correct. So what I find fascinating about our faith uh, is focusing on people and stories. You know, I refer to it as, you know, the spirit of Jesus or the spirit of Muhammad or the spirit of Moses, the spirit of David. Who were these people? And when we live in their stories and we bring their everyday character and conduct to life, we humanize them to the point where they're not, you know, Jewish, Christian or Muslim anymore. They're human. 
So when we find the humane way of looking at our faith, we understand that yes, I mean they are certainly uh, they are certainly linked. We certainly have commonalities, and ultimately these three faiths are calling for all of us to be a super tribe. It's a super tribe of different kind of confederations, different religions, uh, having their own kind of idiosyncrasies and their own details and their own quirks, but ultimately. Abraham is the uniting figure that kind of brings us all in, uh, back to square one. Absolutely. Now, a, a couple of days ago, you posted about a terrorist attack against Christians, which was stopped by Muslims in Kenya. And to be honest, it wasn't a headline that I saw anywhere except in your posts on social media. Had it been the other way, it would have been worldwide breaking news. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I tell my students often that if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? And in this case, um, there was almost violence, right? So it didn't get to a point where it went. So therefore, wait a minute, it's not really a story. Another reason why I think uh, a story like this is neglected in mainstream media is it's because it's happening uh, uh, in Africa. And a lot of people might assume, oh, violence that's happening there is just part of what happens in that continent, which is obviously a gross misrepresentation, and it's a gross stereotype, you know? So even if these Christians had been uh, killed, or vice versa, you know, if Christians were, were saving Muslims, but it happens in a certain part of the world, you know, it doesn't happen to Australians, or it doesn't happen to Americans, or whatever it might be, you know, then it doesn't initiate the same reaction, because you know, these people don't belong to our, our group, our nation. So it, in a way, it, it, it's dehumanizing sometimes when certain terrorist uh, attacks or stories related to terrorism get more stories than other. You know, I call it um, selective grieving. You know, why do, we, why do we grieve when people in, in Paris or a European city or an American city are done down um, for absolutely no reason, but when it happens someplace else, um, you know, it might initiate a different reaction. Um, it, and again, this is all going to, I think, one of the overall themes that we're getting at here is, is simply humanity. You know, like, we are only seeing people in terms of how they look, how they believe, and then we categorize them as, as whether they are, are valuable or not. Uh, so the, the story, going back to that story, I mean, there are so many examples like this that have happened, um, especially in the Middle East in recent times, when ISIS was kind of running amok and going wild. There's a good story uh, in Mosul, the city um, valley of, of your heritage in Iraq. Um, you know, ISIS came in and destroyed uh, a masjid, and you know, ransacked it, and then when ISIS was kicked out, I think, I believe it was called the, the Green Mosque, and when ISIS was kicked out, what ended up happening is that Muslims actually took responsibility for repairing the church. Um, so it was a, it was a church, um, I think I said much earlier, but it was, it was a church. And what a beautiful, humane act of, of kindness and genuine goodwill for your neighbor. Your place is destroyed, your church is destroyed, we are going to rebuild it for you. And that is following the example uh, and legacy of Muhammad. If we look at his covenants with Christians, he is literally commanding Muslims 
if a church goes into disrepair, definitely don't steal anything from it. But if the building is crumbling, it is uh, it is your uh, responsibility to repair it and to rebuild it. So we have all of these beautiful stories, but they don't get covered because they don't they don't they oftentimes don't believe. They're stories of peace, of goodwill, of humanity. And sometimes, unfortunately, Sally, those stories don't, they're not attractive to people because they don't instill fear. And I think a lot of us, a lot of humanity is driven by fear, unfortunately. Coming up, we talk the impact of social media in the conversation. And I ask Dr. Craig whether political leaders need to be doing more to combat Islamophobia. That's next. Pulse 95. Live Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Welcome back to my special interview with Dr. Craig Considine. Here I ask him about the importance of social media in the conversation around Islamophobia and whether political leaders need to be doing more. Speaking of fear, being uh, an American yourself and seeing the current political climate, particularly uh, after the attacks on Christchurch, even leading up to that, really, uh, as that unfolded, and even in the months that followed with attacks on U.S. Congresswomen Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, do you think that political leaders need to do more? Absolutely. Um across the spectrum, across the political spectrum. In the U.S. context, you know, um, certainly the president of this country is um, doing great harm um, to not only our civil discourse uh, and and bringing this idea of America around to the point where we're all American. What he's doing is actually picking on his colleagues, if you think about it. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are his, are his colleagues in office. And when he comes out, even today, he puts something out saying Rashida Tlaib hates all Jews. I mean, that is a ridiculous statement that could potentially bring physical harm to Rashida. I mean, it's, a, it's an absurd comment uh, to make, and it's, and it's absolutely out of left field. So the... Republicans need to uh, tone him down, if even possible, but also Democrats uh, in the context of the United States, and again, I think this is applicable to all kind of political systems that are dealing with issues like this. Yes. A lot of Democrats and, and people in Omar and the party are afraid to also speak up and defend them because they're afraid of also being labeled as a defend, uh, defenders of, of anti-Semites, which is just absurd. So we need to find a way to um, engage in difficult conversations in a civil manner without just throwing out slurs and massively generalized statements. And and these things should not be happening over social media. I mean, these are adults. People need to sit down and they need to have these difficult conversations. Instead of going to Twitter and saying, Rashida Tlaib is an anti-Semite because she doesn't support Israel, I think what needs to happen is a sit-down where people can actually engage. Ask Rashida, so what is your position on this? You know, we're having a difficult time trying to understand your motives and the end goals. That's what needs to happen, a mature conversation rather than just throwing out these 
um, these attacks that are very, very dangerous. Now, you did mention social media there. Of course, uh, the president is, you know, famous for throwing out these attacks on social media. But you yourself, um, you know, on the other side of that spectrum, are doing incredible, incredible good on social media and you're reaching masses of people. So how how important do you see social media being in this wider conversation here? It's massive. Um, you know, as an academic, I don't think a lot of academics see social media as a tool to share their views and their research and network and communicate. But, I mean, for me, it's really kind of one of the epicenters of uh, of. You know my, my network and my ability as a professional uh, to reach people and you know over the last couple of years I've made a deliberate effort to really try to keep things positive and constructive and somewhat apolitical obviously people are going to read my tweets and categorize me and say I'm this and that which is which is uh, natural but you know I think especially with Twitter Sometimes it can be a bit of a, a like a dark space where you kind of go through your timeline, and at least in the United States, you know, it's like hate crime or like uh, another excuse me, uh, like another potential like mass shooting or a radical Muslim group or a white supremacist group just got busted. So it's it's kind of playing into this realm of identity politics, where if someone within your identity group is being attacked, you just go to Twitter and you say, oh my God, you know, this is happening and this is so bad, and it's so bad, you keep posting it, you only post bad things, then you're going to you're gonna generate negative energy. You're going to generate uh, comments that might say, well, your people deserve this stuff, ridiculous stuff like that. So what I'm trying to do is be positive, be constructive, but kind of transcend identity politics in a way to the point where people can see themselves uh, in all of their diversity, you know, their religion, their race, their nationality, and their religion, no matter where you're from, they can see themselves and how they can connect themselves to some of the content that I'm, I'm putting out, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Now, uh, as we celebrate the Hijri New Year, we remember the time when the first Muslims migrated to escape oppression for their faith and to establish a community which 1441 years later has had such a positive impact on every facet of society and in every corner of the globe and yet it seems today that uh, muslims have never been so misunderstood and misrepresented really what dr craig can we do not just to clear the misconceptions and build more understanding but how do we become more human and take better care of each other? I mean, I think the first thing is just to have faith. Have faith in humanity. Have faith in the goodness of people and the goodness of people's hearts. You know, like I get a lot of social media messages, especially from younger people who are just like, you know, I just don't think that anything is ever going to improve. and. I'm a Muslim in X and O country or whatever, and, and they're just like, it's just so bad. And we need to negate these negative feelings, and we need to remember that there's always going to be people that 
have good intentions, that want to build, uh, to build bridges, that want to understand, that want to take care of you, and that want to live with you. So I think, number one, the faith component is, is massive. Um, the second thing, I use a term, uh, an acronym, it's called uh, DEUCE. Uh, and DEUCE stands for you know, the letter two, but it also kind of stands for uh, the P side that you would make with your hand. And DEUCE is a process. It's a process of engaging in religious pluralism, which I uh, refer to as the energetic engagement with religious diversity. That's actually a quote from a Harvard scholar named Diana Eck. And DEUCE stands for dialogue, education, understanding, commitment, and engagement. To break down some of these uh, misconceptions that, Sally, you, you, uh, you pointed out, we have to start talking, right? Like, sometimes that's the hardest part, just to find people that might be willing uh, to sit down and have a chat with you. I mean, that is crucial, breaking the ice. Um, once we actually break the ice and we've developed a little bit of trust and rapport with one another, then we can start educating. So that's when you can pick up the Quran, you can pick up the Bible, you can sit together and you can actually go through the picky and touchy subjects. You know, you can't do that. You can't honestly have an honest conversation about the really difficult theological things or cultural things without first developing the trust through the dialogue. After the dialogue and the education, then we get to the point of understanding. You know, I tell my students this all the time. Like, you can read a book and you can go through this paper or you can listen to this lecture and you can go through my entire course and never really understand. You might get an A, but you never really understand. So we need to get to a point, a kind of lofty big picture point where the light bulb goes off and we say, right, I trust you. Now, when you explain that verse of the Quran that way, I trust you, I understand what you're saying. Once you develop that, then you can commit yourselves to one another. You know, that's when you shake a hand and you say, you look at someone in the eye and you say, we can, we can work together. And then you go out and you do it. And you do it together. That's when you go out and you engage together. You know, and that's a, that's a bond that is, is tough to mess with. You know, with all the haters out there saying, you know, Christians and Muslims are our enemies and they have been forever. When you have an example that you've actually lived and you say, well, there's a church down the street or there's a mosque down the street and we work together with them all the time, because we've gone through this process, you can't mess with that, you know, because that's the truth, and that's love, and that's peace, and those things are undeniable. So much good advice there for all of us to take on board. I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Craig Considine. What an absolute pleasure it is to speak to you. Thank you so much, Sally. It was a real pleasure for me as well. That's it for that. It is Life Beats. More to come in the next hour right here on Pulse95. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.